We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. Fred Film Radio, this is Nicole Comotti here at Venice Days. Fred Film Radio, sono Chiara Nicoletti. Angelo Acerbi, put Fred Film Radio, on Air Festival de Venice. Fred Film Radio, Zvami Sombor Kuterzi. Fred Film Radio, Radio Film of Fred, stay strong and Anna Tatarska. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, you're listening to the Big Fred Tuesday, Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Micucci. IDFA, the International Documentary Film Festival of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, is one of the major documentary film festivals in the world. This year's edition runs from the 17th to the 28th of November, and we'll have some cool chats coming at you from over there over the next few weeks, beginning with the directors of Eat Your Carfish, a POV documentary exploring the life of a woman whose neuromuscular disease has left her paralyzed and needing 24-hour care. Another thing I should mention at the start of the show is that Fred Film Radio is once again media partner of an initiative by European Film Promotion, a showcase of wide-ranging films by women filmmakers titled Europe, Voices of Women in Film, presented at the Sydney Film Festival in Australia. So, over the coming weeks, we will be speaking with the directors selected for this program and we'll begin on this very show with a conversation with Robin Petre about her documentary on marine animal rescue organizations from the wild. Having said all that, on this very episode of the Big Fred Tuesday, I will also be celebrating the life and legacy of the great Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa in the latest installment of our new two-part weekly segment, Celluloid Heroes. And yes, there will be more cinephile recommendations in our regular conclusive segment, Popcorn Classics. So, a lot of bang for your buck in this new episode of the BFT. My suggestion to you, as always, is to fire up an audio teeny and listen to to the audio waves as they fly through the air. Welcome to the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred. Joining us at this time is Robin Petre, director of From the Wild Sea. The film has been screened at a number of festivals throughout the year and was also selected as part of Europe, Voices of Women in Film, a showcase of wide-ranging films from European women filmmakers organized by European Film Promotion to screen at the Sydney Film Festival in Australia. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to have you. We'll be talking about your new film, uh, From the Wild Sea, uh, which, uh, just briefly, just to tell our listeners who are not familiar with it, documents the amazing work of marine animal rescue organizations. And, uh, we'll be getting into it a bit more. But first, this is the first time we talk. So I always kind of like to find out more about the person I'm interviewing. And I've been reading a little bit about you and I read that you have a background in media and journalism. Is that right? Well, when I was quite young, I studied journalism, yeah, but then I, I, I didn't really feel like that world resonated with me as much as the art world. So I actually made a career change um, in my late 20s and became a filmmaker instead. There's a difference. It's kind of a, a leap, right? When you jump from uh, journalism and reporting to actually documentary, you mentioned art. So that was a significant mm-hmm. change for you. They definitely, it was, it was a huge change actually. And I did have to unlearn again some of the journalistic methods that I had been working with for years at that time, um, during my studies and also afterwards. But, 
But yeah, like I said, I was actually, actually, even since I was a child and a teenager, I was very drawn to the arts world. And somehow that path found me eventually. <laughs> mm. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the reason why I brought that up, and we'll be getting into it a bit more later as we talk about From the Wild Sea, is that in right. a documentary like this, I guess, that talks about, you know, serious issues, and uh, it really feels like uh, there, there's an artistic element to it. And we'll be getting into it more. But first, another thing that I read about you is that you also have an MA in documentary film directing from Doc Nomad, which I wasn't familiar with, but it's essentially, from what I understand, it's basically a traveling film school. Was, what was that experience like? It is. It is. Actually, it's a quite amazing initiative. I think it's a collaboration between different universities in three countries. So Belgium, Belgium, um, Hungary and Portugal. And these three different universities are creating this master's degree. So they bring in students from all over the world and we're around 20, 25 people, young people who are, who are studying in these three different schools and learning. I mean, basically the essence of that program is to, to learn to just throw yourself into making films, making a project, um, in a totally unknown environment in a different country where you don't know the language, you don't know anyone and how to build something from nothing. Um, and the program has a very creative, artistic, uh, focus in, in nonfiction film. Anyways, as mentioned, uh, From the Wild Sea uh, documents the work of marine animal uh, rescue organizations. This is not the first time that you've explored the theme of uh, human-animal uh, experience and coexistence. Um, why do you feel this theme close to you? Well, that's true. Actually, From the Wild Sea is part of a bigger artistic exploration of um, human-animal relations and our coexistence with nature. And it's something I've been working with for years and something I also hope to continue working with for the next foreseeable future. This is very close to me because I grew up in a national park in Denmark in a, in a very small village um, surrounded by nature and wildlife. And we had all kinds of animals as well. I, I grew up in a, in a large house with a large and wild garden. I loved to explore this place, this garden and to, to see and observe also the wild animals there. Even as a kid, I was super fascinated with, um, with other life than human life on the planet. So it's almost like, like when some people are so curious about space, you know, like Mars and the moon and you want to go explore something in, in the galaxy. I feel a bit that same fascination, I think, with, for instance, wild animals in the sea that live in this mysterious world that is largely hidden to us. Like we don't see what's underneath the surface. We just see the surface itself. And, and it's, it's just really fascinating to me that we actually share this world with so many other forms of life. And, and I think they're really interesting. And I think that we can learn so much from them as well. Um, I'm not in doubt at all that animals have agency, have like thought processes and that they are someone, not just like objects jumping around because of instincts. I actually think that they, have personalities and you know like there's someone and i wanted to film them as such like subjects not objects 
So you mentioned that uh, this is kind of a major theme that you focus in your work. So when you begin a project, then is it a case of you you're already filming? Maybe you're gathering material that you know you're going to use for a project. Do you do you set out to film a specific thing? In this case, uh, wild animals of the sea. Well, I mean. I certainly don't set out with a, a fixed agenda. Like I'm not trying to prove anything about, for instance, climate change. Um, climate change is a part of, of from the wild sea and it's an important part. But I didn't set out beforehand to prove anything about this. Instead, I, I like to make my project sort of like a journey. And I also hope to maintain that a bit of this feeling of, of a journey or like an exploration that is driven by curiosity. Um, as you're watching the film. And, and yeah, so I never know beforehand where I might end up. If I already knew, it doesn't almost make any sense for me to begin the project. It's, it's very much driven by my own curiosity about this world as well. Uh, and by the way, you know, just out of curiosity, was there anybody whose work you kind of looked up to or that you, uh, sort of admired that did a similar thing to what you're doing now? I mean, there's like, a whole host of references, of course, that go before any work. Um, something that I looked to a lot in this particular film is um, the Sensory Ethnography Lab. There's this duo, Verena Paravel and Lucien Castang-Taylor, and they made a film that is called Leviathan. That is, It's a pretty recent film, and it's really rid of words and obvious... Um, stated meaning, fixed meaning, like it's, it's a very sensory work and it's, it's almost like a meditative journey, um, on this large industrial fishing ship that is also exploring some of the same themes that I'm interested in. So that, for instance, was a really important reference. We'll be back for more on From the Wild Sea in a moment. Fred. We're back with Robin Petray, and we have been talking about From the Wild Sea, a beautiful documentary that looks at the work of marine animal rescue organizations. And I think, Robin, it would be good to talk about these organizations a little bit more. Can you tell me a bit more about them? Yes, of course. Um, the people that we see in the film, they are the majority of them are volunteers. It's um, They are part of a huge volunteer network. And especially in England, in the UK, they have this large network of more than 2,000 volunteers and the network is actually growing. There's a growing interest in marine wildlife rescue. And what I like so much about these people is that they are not all professionals. It's it's really nice and good and great to be a professional and do this work, be a, like study biology or or something like this and go into this work. But But what I like so much is that it's... It's something that you or me or anyone could could participate in. Like anyone can walk in from the street and have some initial training and do something. And I think that's really, that creates a lot of hope for me at least. And I hope for people who watch the film as well, that we can all do something to, to make this planet a bit of a better place, uh, not just for humankind, but for, for all living things. And what are the names of these organizations? I just kind of want to use this opportunity to spread the word. (laughs) Yes. So it's uh, BDMLR, British Divers Marine Life Rescue in the UK, and Seal Rescue Ireland. Um, And then the third group of organizations, the ones who are saving the birds in the film, they are actually 
It, it was an emergency response. So different organizations came from all over the world, from the United States, all over Europe, from Brazil came an organization. And it was like a joint effort to try to, to rescue these hundreds of birds from, from an oil spill. So I cannot pinpoint like one organization in this yeah. case, but, but yeah, it was really fascinating as well to see how people really came from so far away, like across the globe to, to try and, and do something for these birds. It was really fascinating. Couple of things I wanted to ask you about because I, I'm also fascinated with this, uh, with this topic. Um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I try to, uh, be a champion of animal rights too because I just, you know, I love animals. But, um, here, one thing, obviously this is a, um, a celebration also of the work of these, uh, rescuers, many of whom are, are volunteers and really, I mean, it's, a, it's amazing what they do. But what about you? Because you find yourself in, uh, in the midst of this these scenes where there's a lot of animals suffering and obviously it's a lot of you know pain that they go through does it ever uh, become uh, a lot for you to take in i mean uh, what about your own empathy how, how does it how does it feel in this regard i feel that the camera the tool of the camera beca- becomes sort of a way of distancing yourself a little bit from what's happening as it is unfolding, of course, afterwards, you can allow yourself to feel the tragedy of, of losing one of these animals or the frustration of not being able to rescue a dolphin or a whale. But still in this point or in this situation, I'm really concentrated on the work, on the image and the next image and the framing and who's saying what and where are the people and, you know, everything that's going on. So... So the work itself becomes sort of, yeah, it creates sort of a distance that makes everything more digestible. It's a horrible word maybe, but it's not me. It's, it's me at work. And there's a difference between these two. Mm. So I'm super concentrated and less emotionally available to the tragedy of what might be going on. Yeah, and speaking about the camera, I want to talk a little bit about the style of this documentary because in a way, I found it to defy what I guess the general perception of these types of documentary is with the wider public. Uh, for example, one of the things that I, that, that, that I found was that I was drawn to its atmosphere. Uh, I had this impression that at some points it, it, the rhythm too was <laughs> influenced by emotion of the waves of the sea, for example. Very sensorial experience. So how important was style for you in the making of, uh, from the wild sea? Style, form, all of this is everything. That is the film. That is the construction of the film that you're supposed to, with your creative team, make all of these components come together and, and create this uh, sensorial experience for, for the audience in the end. What was a leading way through in combining all these different elements of the film um, was this idea of establishing an animal perspective and how to do this. Um, and this means that I, I really didn't want to film the animals as you see in, on TV, typically in a conventional, uh, nature documentary, which I also enjoy this kinds of film, but I, I felt that our whole society is so information driven. We are bombarded with information every day, news, just like pieces of information that we have to take in with our intellectual minds. And I thought 
that there's really room, there's really a gap where we don't see this other approach that has to do more with something that you can't describe with words, yeah. a feeling, an ambience, a smell, that's something like memories that are like not even memories of your, your conscious self, but maybe like childhood memories that you are not even aware of anymore. But like art has this power to evoke these kinds of latent memories and sensorial experiences from the past as we're watching. And, and I wanted to have this totally different approach. Um, one, because I didn't, I didn't want to add to this endless stream of information that I feel like that's what most people do. There, there's so much out there of that, especially with these topics of, of climate change and so on. And the other thing was the animal perspective that if we just had people talking and explaining all the time the behavior of each animal and what's going on, then the whole film would still just be talking to, to us in a language that only translates to humankind. And I really wanted to, to give the animals space to just be themselves. Yeah. And there is also a sense of distance in this regard. Some people note, mm, but it's because like, if you have these long takes and you just have a seal do what it does, then that's, that's, that is more truthful for me than editing on different close-ups, like, like directing the attention of the audience to different details. Mm. That would be my own subjective human translation of that situation pulled down over this animal all the time. And I wanted to take this huge step backwards, which creates the distance, but also creates a truthfulness, a sense of real time, a sense of um, unmanipulated nature, you can say, or, or just the animal as it is on its own premise. And, and cinematically, I was very interested in this because that almost doesn't exist. Yeah. No, I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, let me just give an example because <laughs> That's I love. That's good because I got a bit sidetracked there. <laughs> no, no, no. This is, this is something that I, it gives me a chance also to just share, uh, uh, my own opinion on this film, which I found very powerful. Uh, uh, one of the things that I thought was powerful, and this is just a small example, but I thought it was very significant was that I realized that the power of hearing animal breathing this is not something that you hear a lot, not even in these documentaries. And there's, the, I think one of the most powerful scenes that I've seen all, all year is this long shot of uh, this group of swans at the back of a car being taken back to, I guess, their natural <laughs> habitat breathing. And you can't, you can't beat the power of a simple scene like that. You really can't. But it's something that's really rarely seen. So no, I love that you said that because I guess <laughs> it, it worked. It worked. I, I can definitely say that. <laughs> that's true. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. That is one of my favorite shots, actually, in the whole film, personally. All right, so uh, we we actually are running out of time. This has been a fascinating conversation so far. So I'd like to just end it uh, with a general question. Uh, given the fact that you have mentioned kind of your your uh, the major theme of your uh, let's say mission uh, as a as a documentary filmmaker, what do you think then is the is the situation at this point in terms of environmentalism and in terms of uh, uh, of uh, animal uh, welfare. Do you think that enough is being done? Do you think that, I guess there is a growing awareness compared to maybe a few years ago, but do you think that it's enough awareness uh, these days? 
I mean, I can only speak from my own personal impressions, which is so limited, right? Um, but in, in the making of From the Wild Sea, I definitely had this hopeful feeling of the new generations, like all these young people with so much environmental awareness and care and effort put into what they do. I mean, random people, anyone, you and me, anyone can, can join these groups, right? And do something. You don't have to be an animal professional to join these networks and do make your own difference in the world. And, and that was great to see. But that, see, that said, I mean, we, we also have all these politics, like these political barriers, and it feels like they are being pushed, but it's too little too late again and again and again. So there's definitely a lot of frustration mixed with this hope. And, and yeah, I, I'm still overall hopeful because I guess I have to be, but I feel like there's so much room for improvement in this area. And, and yeah, we really are running out of time when you listen to science. And that's also a, a side effect of doing the work that I do because I actually look a lot into scientific reports and I speak with people who have a scientific background and they work firsthand with these issues. And when you dig, when you really dig into these problems of the changing climate and ecosystem collapse and biodiversity loss, the future looks really bleak. And it's just to say that there is so much we have to do and we have to do it now. And it's totally overwhelming for the individual. But of course we can, of course we can save the planet if we all do something. And especially if we organize ourselves. Um, I'm really, really against. I just want to add, I know we're out of time, but I just want to add that I'm really, really against shaming each other and, and sort of arguing who is flying, who is eating meat, who is, I don't know, taking a long shower and using a lot of water. I think this is not what it's about. I think we need systematic structural changes, really. We need to ban all the plastic wrapping on bananas and apples in the supermarket. Like it, it shouldn't be up to the individual to, to shame each other for buying a plastic wrapped apple. It shouldn't even be an option because politicians Politicians should ban this plastic from being there in the first place. I think we need to, that's what, what I mean with, um, wanting to, to have us organize ourselves and, and really push for these large changes, um, in the system. Absolutely. Well, Robin, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks very much for, for joining us. I remind our listeners the film is called From the Wild Sea and definitely recommend it. Thanks a lot, Robin. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Red Film Radio. Cinephile, it's time for a new edition of our new biographical segment, Celluloid Heroes. Every week we explore and celebrate the life and works of a significant figure of film history. The segment is split into two parts. The first part is biographical and the second part highlights three of the person's works. And for today's segment, I decided to celebrate the legacy of the great Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. Akira Kurosawa was already an award-winning painter by the time he decided to begin his career in filmmaking, partly inspired by his childhood trips to the movies with his father, who was an athletics educator and film lover. After getting his start as an assistant director, he made his first film in 1943, a martial arts picture set in 19th century Japan called Sanshiro Sugata. 
After a string of domestic successes, in 1950 he directed Rashomon, which became his first true international success. At the time, it was hailed for its innovative narrative structure as a samurai murder story told from the perspective of four different characters. The international success of Rashomon also helped expose the brilliance of Japanese cinema at large in the West, and it's no surprise that the movie itself would be remade as a Western title of The Outrage in 1964, making it the first of many Western adaptations of his works. Rashomon kickstarted a golden decade for Kurosawa, during which he solidified his reputation as a cinematic force to be reckoned with through films such as Ikiru from 1952, The Epic Seven Samurai from 1954, and Throne of Blood from 1957. Kurosawa's blend of Japanese tradition and Hollywood influences made him particularly popular and palatable on a universal level. He also helped introduce many filmmaking techniques that are used to this day, including an innovative use of the axial cut and wipes as transitional devices. In the 1960s, he was able to start his own production company, which granted him even more artistic freedom. And the first film from this venture was Yojimbo from 1961, which would eventually inspire a young Sergio Leone to design the influential spaghetti western movement. But from there on began a darker period of his career, which included a botched stint in Hollywood and a tragic suicide attempt in 1971. Kurosawa temporarily suffered the fate of many cinema greats in the face of television's growing popularity. But by the mid 70s, he successfully revived his career, re establishing his reputation with his Oscar winning 1975 epic, Dersu Uzala, the only non Japanese language movie he ever made in his career. Kurosawa's second renaissance would eventually culminate in another masterpiece, 1985's Ran, a quintessential samurai epic that was equally praised for the grandeur of its imagery. Intellectual depths of its screen adaptation and the intensity of its dramatic performances. The spectacle of Ran is even more impressive when we consider that at the time of making it, Kurosawa was practically blind, and it really is a feast for the eyes. Subsequent movies of his failed to garner the same level of positive response, but by now, Akira Kurosawa was unquestionably regarded a master of cinema and regularly praised by such Hollywood directors as George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. George Lucas actually quoted him as a major Star Wars influence. Kurosawa died in 1990, aged 88. Later in the show, I will highlight three of his works that I feel particularly represent him and serve as a great starting point for anyone looking to dig deep into his amazing filmography. But for now, it's time for more film conversation on The Big Fred Tuesday, so stay tuned. Fred Film Radio. Joining us at this time are Noah Amir Arjumand and Adam Eisenberg, two of the directors of a very powerful and moving documentary that is being presented at IDFA this year, Eat Your Catfish. Noah, Adam, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, thanks for having well, us. I'm very happy uh, that we could get together uh, on this call to talk about Eat Your Catfish, a really powerful, moving documentary that I think we can all agree. You know, has very little to do with actual catfish, right? Yeah. So let's <laughs> just to get that out of the way、uh, before we begin. No, but if I can just briefly introduce the film for the folks listening who are not familiar with it, just this is the story of a woman named Catherine who, after years with ALS, is kind of left paralyzed and needing 24 hour care.、Uh, so, very intense topic. But, Noah, this is also the story of your mother, right? That's correct, yeah. 
So I'd like to start by asking you, uh, was Eat Your Catfish and this whole idea of uh, making a documentary about uh, her life your idea? And what was your motivation behind it? Well, yeah. So I guess the, the original concept I would say was mine, which which the idea was in, in part it was because I was spending so much time with her kind of taking care of her and, and thinking that in some ways our family relationships were would potentially be interesting to pe- to people because they're kind of similar and maybe dynamics that a lot of people experience but really pushed to an extreme by the disease and of course because I was there kind of in the apartment so much of the time I had really kind of unparalleled access so you know I, I kind of came up with the concept of you know the camera placement and so on but I didn't really know what to do with it from there I thought you know originally I thought maybe this would be like a kind of museum video installation something like this maybe it would be a short story but it was really the the whole the film came together when I started talking to to Adam and then later to to uh Senem, our, our third Senem Tuzan our third co-director um and it was really them who who kind of turned my concept and my footage into a story the story that you see on screen right and how did you three kind of meet and get together yes or adam uh, no however no we met at a festival uh the margaret mead film festival in new york uh, eight years ago i think Noah and i met there uh when i had a film there and then later we got to know each other in istanbul and Sanem is my wife and we've been doing uh, working together as creative partners for 15 years now so we always work together taking turns as producer and director of each other's projects. So when Noah came to me with this amazing material, it was sort of automatic that Sanem would be a part of this. It's a very original project to me. I'm wondering, were you, did you have any uh, reference points in terms of projects that kind of tried to do the same thing? Well, the, to some extent, I think films by, um, films like Leviathan and Sweetgrass, or is it Sweetgrass or Sweetgreen? Sorry, uh, by uh, Lucien Castang-Taylor. Uh, I think inspired me in, in terms of having kind of these long, uninterrupted takes where instead of kind of having um, maybe, you know, an argument or an idea almost imposed on you by the camera work and, and the montage and, and so on, you you kind of were able to, to really just observe interactions as they happened. So th- there was that idea kind of that I had. And, and really more than anything, what I wanted to be able to do was create uh, almost as as close to an actual fly on the wall as you could, right? Where you, you didn't have uh, any crew involved. It was really just a camera running where people knew it was running, of course, but really it became so normal as kind of part of the household, really part of the all the equipment, the medical equipment around my mom, that we, we kind of just started after a certain point acting, you know, naturally and not self-consciously about it. And and that was really, the the concept was to try to, not so much to show kind of the, the front stage, the like kind of uh, well-rehearsed version of our life or telling of our life in kind of a sit-down interview, but to really show the kind of intimate, you know, good, bad, and the ugly of what life was like. So that that's really where the idea came from, to to have kind of the, the camera the way it was and so on. Yeah. If I, right. A, a more naturalist approach, If I right. could say that, yeah, this footage and the approach and this idea, kind of the concept to do this, to have this one camera from the same position of the main character of the patient the entire time, to me was so original and so purposeful and valuable. You know, sometimes you have an idea that's strange and odd and kind of a, original, 
but well, what's the point really? It doesn't improve on anything. But it really improves on this kind of um, endless effort to be a fly on the wall as a documentary filmmaker because there really is no crew there. And when I saw it, I was amazed by this footage when I first saw it. And I realized that, wow, this is exactly what this story needs. And for seven years now, we've been editing this footage. There was 930 hours in total. So it took a long time. And as Sam and I have edited the footage and tried to build um, this narrative that came out of it eventually, you know, a clear story, um, we, I thought a lot about this. You know, can this apply to other films? Could someone take the same idea and do it with a different story? And I haven't come up with anything because it's so unique and fits so perfectly as a form with this particular story of someone who's paralyzed, who only has use of either mind is intact, her eyes and her ears work. It's a lot like uh, someone watching a film. So when you sit there, you are her in a lot of ways. And I can't really think of another story where this could work, but someone else might be able to. That definitely fits perfectly with this story, seems to me. Right. And, and seeing as we're talking about the style and the process with which you kind of project came together, I definitely am going to want to return to the origins of the film and kind of the filming process too. But I, I was also curious to find out more about how you, you put the film together because as you mentioned, there were over, I think, 900 hours of, of footage. So that's, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of footage. I mean, was there a process or a structure that you had in place, uh, with which you can, you, you could manage you know, the, the, all this, uh, all these hours of footage. Well, um, it's, it's brutal, but we actually watched all of it. I mean, we watched it several times, I would say, over the years. And obviously the parts that we were interested in, we watched many times. So I, I hate to think how many hours we sat and, and looked at footage. And obviously a lot of it is just maybe Catherine sleeping in the dark, not a lot going on. You can probably fast forward, but you better be careful. You might miss something tiny there. But um, we also had the advantage that Noah, as he went, he wasn't simply turning the camera on. He kind of knew, well, today will probably be interesting. We've got a new nurse. There's probably going to be a conflict with my dad because there's always challenges in those situations. So he would turn the camera on in those days and let it run for hours. So he wasn't in the room, but he was a conscious um, production director, let's say, directing the production on his own, choosing. And we could we talked together about what might be interesting, but generally Noah was deciding that. And then actually he would take notes. He would say, oh, this is something interesting happened during this five-hour period. You might want to check that. So those notes were actually at first a guide, kind of landmarks of interesting things. But eventually, you know, we ended up, we, we watched all the footage uh, more than once and found all kinds of little gems that Noah didn't know about because he wasn't in the room at the time. So, yeah, it was as hard as it sounds, to be honest. Right, because you're you're condensing all these hours of footage into a film that's basically, I think, 74, 75 minutes long. And what I really admired about it is that you're not only using the moments that really feel like landmark moments. You know, obviously, you've got Noah, you've got your sister's wedding and uh, but also the, the little moments. And and I was wondering whether somehow you developed enough sens sensibility as you were working and as you were watching the footage uh, where you could kind of pick up on those moments. Um, yeah, I think that actually was really part of the process where, of course, at first we were really drawn to these extremely sort of shocking moments. You know, there's things that are just shocking about the disease, if you're not familiar with ALS, that are just really kind of upsetting. And naturally, we were kind of drawn to that because we were, it was new to us and also to the conflicts with the family and so on. But it's true that over time, it was actually so hard. It actually became a bit difficult emotionally over a period to kind of deal with the footage. We sort of, I became a bit saturated with it. And I would take turns kind of with Sanem, um, kind of dealing with this project because it was hard. And we did hit a point after a few years where I just thought, okay, this is enough. It's, it's too hard. And, you know, I started to laugh at some of the footage, funny things that happened. And we made a conscious decision. Let's just try to go for just anything that makes us laugh. 
Let's squeeze it out of this. There's definitely stuff here. And the more we went with that approach, the more we were able to balance it. Not only looking at the big drama and the conflicts in the family, but also looking for the little things. And I think, and I think Sanem as well, because she comes from a scriptwriter's background. She, she's made fiction films. And this has really been her approach, uh, is to really see this kind of a narrative arc, to always look for this, to see the people, um, in their, full complexity uh, as though they are fictional characters and to see that we need something here that's light in order to balance that. And she really mapped out very well um, this sort of overarching themes, ideas, approaches, underlying stories, side stories, and so on, uh, much better than I could. That was very helpful. We'll be right back for more on Eat Your Catfish in a moment. Fred. We're back with directors Noah Amir Arjamand and Adam Eisenberg talking about Eat Your Catfish, a moving POV documentary on a woman with ALS left paralyzed and needing 24-hour care. Noah, what was your mother's initial reaction when you told her that you wanted to make a documentary about her? Well, she she was very much in favor of it. I think in part, maybe in large part, it was because she felt very guilty about how much of my time she was ultimately taking, you know, that I was kind of pinned down, taking care of her, feeding her, adjusting her position and her equipment and so so on for so many hours. So to turn it into a project, I think, to kind of, you know, to, what was for, for me was, I think, for her, a way in which she maybe felt she could be giving something back. But that said, I think she also did kind of get into the filmmaking process a bit and she was kind of... Um, you know, uh, she thought it was funny, the idea of herself, you know, being on, on uh, TV or on the big screen at some point. And so she, she was, yeah, in favor of it. And I think, you know, both both her and especially my dad, I'd say another thing that they, they kind of unexpectedly would say on occasion is when they would be fighting, they would both sometimes want to use the footage as evidence kind of to prove that they were right and the other one was wrong. So, you know, occasionally my dad would point at the camera and, and be like, oh, you know, you'll see, we'll run back the tape kind of thing. And, and then, you know, I'll be proved right. That that ultimately never, you know, we never actually sat down together and, and watched the tape to, uh, to uh, you know, adjudicate disputes. But I think there's maybe something about like, okay, you know, things are being, evidence is being collected here that, that uh, I, I think to some extent she liked or appreciated or, or just you know at a more basic level her her life was being being documented right 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 kind of goes to show that there is it there is a universal quality uh, to this documentary also that makes it easier to connect uh with something like als which is kind of my my next question i was going to ask you as well was do you think that uh eat your catfish kind of addresses some misconceptions that people might have about als you feel or or even people who need 24-hour care yeah, well, I'll, I'll get started and then maybe Adam will want to add something on after. But yeah, I mean, my own impression, I guess, so there are a good number of ALS films out there. Um, you know, a lot of really good films that are addressing often kind of the larger picture, you know, the, the, the politics of it and, and so on, or kind of the, the medical issues themselves. And I actually felt that the way we could kind of complement those and, and stand out would be not so much to focus on you know, too explicitly on the disease itself. I mean, of course, you you do learn important things about ALS, like, you know, that, that it affects really the body, but not the mind. You know, we see both hear that explicitly told to us, but then we also see in, in the evidence of my mom, you know, maintaining her sense of humor and still, you know, writing eloquently and so on. 
we, we, we see that in practice that, that, uh, although she can't move, she's still very much, you know, a, a person and, and present and thinking and so on. So, you know, at that level, yeah, hopefully we can, you know, uh, potentially get rid of misconceptions or just kind of assumptions people have when they see somebody in a wheelchair who kind of looks, you know, motionless, inert, has maybe a strange posture and so on to, to kind of humanize them at that level. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to say that for, for me, I don't have this experience of caring for someone with this sort of kind of a very severe physical disability requiring such intensive care. And so for me, it was really a window into a completely new world. And when I first saw it, I was, I was kind of amazed by it, and I think it achieves what I think any director of a documentary wants, which is for people to, to, to create an encounter where people who are watching meet people who are different from them, when to an extent everyone's different from everybody else, but someone who's really quite living something quite different from the viewer, and to deeply understand them and to understand their point of view. And I think this, uh, this film achieves that in flying colors. So it's been amazing for us to go through this footage and see that. And I think for me also, um, it really, right away, it challenged my assumptions. Where when Noah first came to me, before I saw the footage that he'd already shot, he'd already decided on sort of why he wanted to do something and also the, the, the angle of the camera and all that. And he showed me some test footage. And I remember our conversation before I saw the footage and I just immediately assumed, oh, we'll shoot it like this, we'll do it like that. And I had this image of a really quite affectionate family, you know, the dad holding the mom's hand, discussing her mortality and so on. That's not at all what happened. That's not at all what's in the footage. There's a lot of frustration, irritation, anger, guilt, very complex feelings. And all of these feelings, I hadn't really reflected on it. That's what's going on probably in a lot of families, taking care of someone either with ALS or, you know, a, a severe neck injury. Anything that requires really intensive, constant care is going to reveal so many things and create so many fissures in any family uh, that is really interesting to explore and also important to understand and appreciate. Just as a final question, because we're kind of running out of time, Noah, I just wanted to return to how uh, this filming process might have uh, impacted your personal relationship uh, with uh, your mother uh, towards the end. Do you feel that somehow it was a positive, did the, the presence of the camera was a positive presence? Well, you know, we actually stopped filming before, well before she actually passed away, which was in, in 2017. Um, so actually, the, you know, her very final moments, sorry to give away a spoiler, but are, are, are not on, uh, film. She did, she was able to see a very, an early rough cut though, actually in, in her last week when she had already decided to go off of life support. And she loved it. And I think it was about the only time that week I heard her laugh, uh, mostly at my father's expense, honestly, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think it, 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 she was very pleased then to, to see it coming together. And I think that she did feel that it was, it was getting at, you know, so, some truth about our family. So yeah, you know, I, I think she was pleased about that to the end. Well, Noah and Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you guys. So thanks very much for, for joining us. I thought uh, Eat Your Catfish was uh, very powerful, moving, and, and I absolutely loved its humanity. So thanks very much for joining us and talking with us about it. Thank you, Matt. Fred. 
Cinephile, earlier in the show, we took a brief look at the intense life of Akira Kurosawa and the legacy of his filmmaking during a career that spanned several decades and established him as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. The quality and quantity of his output makes choosing just three of his films a challenge, but I feel that these three films that I will mention will particularly be useful to those who may be unfamiliar with his works. The first film I will highlight is Ran from 1985, which to me is an absolute magnum opus. Inspired by a mixture of Shakespeare and traditional Japanese legends, the film talks about a 16th century warlord who decides to abdicate as ruler in favor of his three sons and the subsequent bloody and violent familial conflict that follows. At the time, the film became the most expensive Japanese film ever produced, but as mentioned, Ran was equally praised for the grandeur of its imagery, intellectual depth of its screen adaptation, and the intensity of its dramatic performances. The fact that it is a feast for the eyes and a true cinematic spectacle is even more impressive when you know that Kurosawa directed it at a time when he was practically blind and that he painted thousands of images to show his team what he wanted Ran to look like. The second film I wanted to highlight is perhaps his most popular movie, Seven Samurai from 1954. This is an epic samurai drama set in and around the same period in Japanese history as Ran, but following the story of a village of farmers who call upon a team of samurai to protect them from a team of bandits who are set to return to steal their crops after the harvest. This is a spectacular adventure drama inspired by Western movies that solidified a narrative device which would be used time and time again in films that followed, you know, where someone puts together a team of fellow renegades to take matters into their own hands and re-establish a sense of justice and order. It was also famously remade in 1960 as a Hollywood Western titled The Magnificent Seven and remains one of the most remade and referenced movies of all time. It is impossible to separate the figure of Kurosawa from those of the legendary Japanese samurais. However, it would be wrong to think that the Japanese filmmaker remained creatively confined to period narratives, which is why my third pick is not Rashomon, Kagemusha or Throne of Blood. I've decided to choose Ikiru from 1952, a drama openly critiquing the inefficiency of the bureaucratic system and the decay of family life in Japan to the life of an older man as he questions the meaning of life in his final days. This is among Kurosawa's most harrowing and existentialist works, inspired by Leo Tolstoy's 1886 novella The Death of Ivan Illich, and among its most praiseworthy qualities is its mix of sobering reality and tinges of surrealism. These three films I believe to be Kurosawa's most representative works. And even though it's quite an arduous task to highlight only three films from a career spanning several decades, I believe these to be particularly useful for anyone looking to discover the stellar filmography that this great director left behind. Back for more BFT after this. Fred Film Radio. Cinephile, we have reached the end of yet another episode of the Big Fred Tuesday, but if you've listened to the show before, you know that I like to close it by highlighting a film that I feel counts as essential cinephile viewing. This is a little conclusive segment of the show that I like to call Popcorn Classic. And for today's show, I chose to highlight Agnieszka Holland's Europa Europa from 1990, the incredible story of a boy who tries to conceal that he is Jewish by joining the Hitler Youth during the Nazi Germany. 
common times. The film was directed by Polish filmmaker Agnieszka Holland, who also wrote its screenplay, which, despite its Dickensian characteristics and coincidences, was actually based on a true story. Europa Europa is a harrowing tale of survival with a universal message and a good dosage of tension that makes it all the more effective. At the time of its release, the German media was slightly embarrassed by it, but the movie went on to be internationally praised and even garnered an Oscar nomination. On a side note, as far as films about the Nazi Holocaust go, this remains one of the most original works. For this reason and more, I solemnly declare Europa Europa a popcorn classic. I will give it five bags of popcorn and five cups of soda. And that's all for this episode of the BFT. Don't forget to tune in next week for a brand new show on all things cinema with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. Make sure to also check out more of our content across our various channels and in multiple languages as well. Till the next time, this is Matt Micucci signing off. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong, stay cinephile, and stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred, 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 Fred. Benvenuti su Fred Film Radio, the Festival Insider. This is Fred Film Radio, yeah, I'm Eddie Bertotti. Clémence Ferry-Latour for Fred Film Radio, en direct du Festival de Cannes. Quantanni sono senza un sacchino, hanno scioccato. Alain Beconfi, Fred Film Radio, Marco Momaragan. Fred, Fred, the Festival Experience in 23 languages. Fred Film Radio, 24-7 on fred.fm and smartphone apps.